If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. I'm so glad you're all still there. You know, we had just such a hefty dose of gouging and a burning and a... Best, Beskins was a new one. <laughs> no, and, and rib action. Rib action was a new one on me. <laughs> I mean, we are we are with a kindred spirit here, it seems. Our boogles are looking very, very under underwhelming compared to Seabag's tartars. Well, we should, we should not just say Seabag because for those of you who, who don't know, um, our very special guest has joined us again uh, for this podcast, Simon Seabag Montefiore, author of The World, A Family History of Humanity, along with... Other fabulous books on Russia, which we have used. The Romanovs. The Romanovs, yeah, absolutely. So, look, we had just uh, left you at the last episode with Michael, the reluctant czar, and his mother sort of being jostled to take over. We are now going to leap forward to the grandson of Michael. Peter the Great. So when we left Michael, Michael's mother, I mean, we may not have mentioned this, was whinging at the time saying, why am I taking over this? There's not even any silver in this place. It's like, there's nothing left. The cupboard yes. is bare, it's like a grumpy gone. mother Hubbard, you know. Yeah, well, there was no bedding. There were no roofs on the palaces. So <laughs> anyway, so you know, they took over. And the, 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 the key point, as far as empire is concerned, before we get to all the extraordinary stuff about Peter the Great, is that... The Romanovs came to power saying that they would restore the empire, restore royalty, and, and throw out all the invaders who were the Tartars, the Swedes, and the Poles. And they did this. And so the, the new, the Romanov dynasty was founded on the idea that the Tsar is a military commander in chief. And that is important because come to our own period, that's why Russian leaders, Stalin, Peter the Great, um, Putin, see themselves as incomplete unless they are real commanders in chief. And that real precedent is created by none other than Peter the Great. So is it, is it true? I mean, you, you I think, have, have said this in one of your books, that Putin idolises Peter the Great. And he's read your book, Potemkin. That's that's one of his... He's, um, he's read my book, Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Did you get a fan mail? Did, I didn't did get Vlad a fan mail. Did send a little sort of email or what happened? He sent the Minister of Culture. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And the Minister of Culture... With a head or...? Um, no head. <laughs> the Minister of Culture's offer was that, you know, as a reward, would I like to, would I like to research Stalin? Would I like to have access to Stalin's archives, mm. which they were just opening in 1999, which I did. And I wrote Stalin, of course, the Red Tsar. But the point is that he, reg- he, he does worship Peter the Great. He worships Peter the Great and he worships... Prince Potemkin and the, that era, this 18th century era. He even, even worships, century. according to Lavrov, his foreign minister, Ivan the Terrible, our yeah, star I, from the yeah, last episode. Yeah, mm. Sergei Lavrov says that, you know, his, his real advisors in the invasion of Ukraine were Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, all of whom we're discussing in this podcast. Yeah, we are. So let's let's dive straight into Peter. A huge figure and a huge man. But let's go back to sort of baby Peter. When does he appear on the scene? Who is he? You said that earlier the, that the uh, uh, that the that the ones with the troubled childhoods end up with the most troubled adulthoods, and this seems to be very much the case here. 
Yeah, he's born the child of, uh, of an old czar who marries for the second time, Alexei. He's born in 1672 um, by a second wife. And there's an older family of children by Maria Mil- Miloslavskaya, who's, his, who's Tsar Alexei's first wife. When he's 10 years old, he succeeds to the throne, jumping a lot of intrigues here. And there's then a Streltsy rebellion. The Streltsy, remember, the musketeers. Were, the, were the musketeers mm. founded in, I think, 1555 by Ivan the Terrible. But now they're totally out of date, entrenched elite and kingmakers, and they think they can do what the hell they like. They raid the Kremlin and they throw off Peter's godfather and his, and his uncles, and they throw them off the balcony of the Kremlin palace and they onto their pikes, and they then chop them up and go around carrying bits of them round the Kremlin saying, look, here comes Prime Minister Matveyev, and they're actually only holding an arm. And the 10-year-old Peter is watching all of this. And so he grows up with gross, grave insecurity. Is is he he watching this, you know, with a sort of pike against his head? Yes, yes, he's watching it with a pike against his head and his mother. They're terrified. These, the Streltsy, who are large ruffians in fur hats, scarlet coats, carrying pikes and guns, are running riot, chopping people up in front of him. People he knows and knows well. A dwarf betrays his uncle, one of his Narishkin uncles, who's torn out and thrown onto the pikes in front of little Peter. He's impaled and then chopped up. They they basically create a sort of charnel house butcher's shop in in Red Square. And all of this is seen by little Peter. He's 10 years old. He grows up hating the Streltsy and wanting absolute power. And he also grows up, I mean, the physical manifestation of this, I don't know whether I'm just being too mumsy about it, but, you know, he has, he he ticks, doesn't he? He has jerks and twitches and ticks, which nowadays, you know, we, we call we can call as sort of part of the manifestation of PTSD. You know, you can see these things He has happening. PTSD. You, you would say that. Yeah. Uh, he says himself, I've never known such terror as I knew from the Streltsy. I, I, I wake up in the night having nightmares about it. And it is now almost certainly that A, he gets his tics and B, he suffers from epilepsy, which of course is a state secret that the, the Tsar has epilepsy. Mm. Um, and so, you know, he's an extraordinary figure. He grows up to be a giant. He's six foot seven. He's, um, as a younger man, he has a rather small head and a large body. But what you don't see from the portraits is these ticks and twitches. So mm. he grows up to be strong and terrifying and incredibly able and, you know, one of the most able statesmen in world history. And he's intelligent. He doesn't like he's, books. He's not bookish. He's not really concerned with poetry or reading Latin or history. But but he, he loves doing things with his hands. He's you know, one of those me- mechanical-minded, taking cannons apart or understanding how they work. Yes, he's fascinated by technology. He's fascinated by guns. He, he, his first, when he's a, a boy, he, he, he goes to where his mother's in exile in Preobrazinskaya. And he creates his own play regiments, which start off with, you know, a whole lot of stable boys and grooms. And one of them is, is later becomes Prince Menchikov, his best friend. Mm. And, he's, and him and Menchikov are very close. He calls him my, my darling heart. And he creates these play regiments. And these play regiments become the guards, become the imperial guards of Russia until 1917. And they are the Praetorian guard that keeps the Romanov family in power. And as he grows up, he's obsessed with ships and guns. He you tell a nice story in your book about him being given a sextant for the first time, and no one yes. in Russia can use it, but he's obsessed That's with it. That's right. And so he starts to spend, he's given it by a Dutchman, and he begins to spend his time um, at the German colony, the German town, which is where all the foreign experts 
And there he becomes best friends with two older men. One is, um, is France Lefort, who's a Swiss mercenary. And one is called Patrick Gordon, who's an, a Scotsman. The cock the first, of the East. The cock of the East, who's a, an enormous uh, a womanizer, a drunk, a drinker. Both of these, both these men, the Swiss and the Scotsman, are extraordinarily able, up to date with the best military technology, and they, they become devoted to young Peter. One of the loves that you haven't mentioned, which is a huge part of his life, is booze. I mean, the lad He's, can drink. I mean, in the course of this story, he loses two prime ministers to alcohol poisoning. And um, he starts up now with his, his Swiss and German friends, something called the Jolly Company, which is his gang. And it's a sort of clubhouse situation in Lefort's house, in General Lefort's house. And they start drinking incredibly heavily. And, it, you know, he literally often passes out. As he becomes into power, we might as well do this now. Yeah. He expands this into a sort of semi-religious, sort of uh, sacrilegious satire, a living pastiche, which I guess the thing it most resembles is Led Zeppelin on tour um, <laughs> in the 70s. I'm not, I'm not sure they'll thank you yeah. for it. Peter the Great as, yeah. as yeah. Robert Plant. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, Who's it's, the Jimmy it's, Page in this analogy? Well, there is a Jimmy Page. There, you know, they, they are always amazing characters. There's Menchikov, there's Lefort. There's heavy drinking. Excuse the modern sensibilities, but there are dwarfs jumping out of cakes. There are naked women. Mm. Um, there are pigs drawing drawing carriages there. Everyone is dressed as religious as popes or patriarchs or priests. And they all have hilarious names like big prick, go prick, Fuck me now. Um, oh, all of this Lord. sort of thing. I don't know what I'm, you might have to censor a lot of this. No, you're allowed no. to do this. It's a podcast. It's and, okay. We and do it's this. Called, and, and it's quite funny because yeah. they're all called things like using the word hui, which is the, the Russian word, which is also, of course, what Putin is now known as is Putin Huilo, Putin the dickhead. So this word, again, is, is kind of <laughs> relevant, no, it's relevant now. Um, they, they, they parade around with phalluses and sausages, and there are giants, there are dwarves, there are girls. Naked girls are constantly jumping out of cakes. Actually, I mean, literally, naked girls jumping out of cakes. That's not a figure of speech. And and they drink so heavily that they often have fights. One person is actually killed by being... One person pulls somebody else's hair and they stab them with a fork. Um, There's a lovely bit. You say that he frequently punches his henchmen, occasionally knocking them out through over-exuberance or fury. Yeah, yeah. He often, I mean, he often suddenly remembers that somebody's been corrupt. And Mm. it's the the, the fight in all Russian rulers is to control corruption. And the basic rule is the same as now, which is like, I give you what I like. And but I can take it away from you whenever you like. And there's also there's like. also this faux humility that goes on. I mean, we'll, we'll come back to the fact that <clears throat> when he first comes to power, he's kind of a joint czar. It's a co-chief mm. executive position, which he soon yeah. sorts out. But when he's having, I, I'm obsessed with your drunken synod. Uh, you write about it so so yeah. well, and you know, as well as sort of pointing his finger across the table, going, "You're a traitor!" And you're, everyone must dread going to drink with Peter. You must absolutely hate <laughs> it because you just don't know well, what's going to happen. Have, you had to have an iron constitution, as I said. Two prime ministers actually yeah. died. He said, "He said I've lost two I've lost two field marshals from this disease, he says about this drinking. disease. And, and um, he calls it this deadly disease. And it's called the all mad, all jesting, all drunken synod. Right. And it travels around with him. But do and they dress up as popes yes, and patriarchs? Yes, they dress up as everything. And you say they norm- literally throw dwarfs around. Again, this they is throw not dwarfs around. Sensibilities, and, they also, and they also, there's this sort of, they also have fights. The people die during it of alcohol poisoning. Mm. Um, and But it, it, in a way, it's the Russian government at play. And the Russian government is wherever Peter is. 
And one of the interesting things is you've got to have an iron constitution to survive the court of Peter the Great. Mm. But also interesting is that he's got an amazing eye for people. He's what, you know, like all great rulers, he's brilliant at spotting people, he, he, spotting able people. He has all the talents of the great ruler. He has vision, he has acumen, and he has the resources to do this stuff, to do what he wants. At the moment, I mean, we're talking about him as if he's, he's on his own, but he's, he's in this kind of weird situation where he's sharing power. Yes, the result of that terrible sort of that terrible Streltsy rebellion was that he, was, he succeeded the throne with his elder brother, who was a simple-minded or incapable of, of ruling. And he's actually ruled by his elder half-sister, Sophia, who's one of the most extraordinary women in, in Russia, the first woman to rule, who at 25 becomes the ruler of Russia. But they call her the, the great sovereign lady is what they call Great sovereign lady. Yeah. But, but five years later, Peter's old enough to take power. He seizes power from everybody. Assisted by a man you call the windbag. Who is he? Well, Hovansky <laughs> is, a one, is, is the Cossack sort of lead, is a Cossack commander, cavalry commander, who he soon gets rid of. And... Basically, um, Peter becomes absolute ruler in 1689, and then he sets about trying to reform Russia, and he, he's basically obsessed with the military. Okay, before we get to the military, though, because what a man who has everything in a drunken synod, what, what, what else does he need? He needs a wife, of course, because he sounds like perfect marriage material. So his mother's going to be queuing up. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, that's a good point, Anita. So he, he, at the same time, his mother marries him to Eudoxia Lopukina, who is... Uh, an ordinary, very kind of um, shy, um, traditional Russian wife. And Russian women were traditionally locked up in the Terem, which is not a dissimilar to Hari. Yeah, it sounds, same, even sounds similar. like it. And does it have and a Mongol origin? You were saying in the last episode about... It may well have a Mongol. It may, it may well have an Islamic... It may have well have an Islamic origin. But Peter changes all that. He's already got a mistress, Anna Mons, who is a German girl in the German, in the German district. And he's really liked, he actually likes kind of liberated women, unusually. Yeah. yeah. And so this wife, they never really interests him, but he does have a son with her, Alexei. Well, uh, well wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're skipping my favourite part of, of all of this ancient Russian history. <laughs> the bride show. Now, look, we've got, we've got experience of Cilla Black. <laughs> Okay, yes. Yes. There is the American yeah. equivalent, which is, which is, you know, the, the, the bachelor, where, yes. you know, you have this bevy of women who are present. That is how his wife is chosen. Talk us through it. It's the most fabulous story, Sivag. Go on, tell us. It's a generation game, I mean, but with princesses on the conveyor yes. belt. Rather. I mean, I mean it's the lo- this is the last great bride show, really. And what happens is traditionally, uh, and this may be, uh, no one's quite sure if this is a Mongol or a Byzantine tradition, but basically an order is sent out to rush to to all towns that they are to send their prettiest women. Um, this is all very very unpolitically correct, obviously. No, it's all hideous. I'm Moscow. hating every minute, but do go on. They, are, they all come to Moscow. They are they are inspected by they are inspected by doctors. Then they meet the the, the husband, the the, the young bachelor czar, and all the prince, and he chooses more of them. They have to go undergo more tests, and ultimately. Um, he gives a handkerchief to the one, to the one he chooses. But this being the Russian court, uh, that the, 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 it's not over yet because different factions obviously support. It's not like like all these things, like whether it's X Factor or um, you know uh, or any of these singing contests. It's actually kind of fixed because obviously different factions have their candidates, and so it looks like an equal competition. Of course, it isn't. Mm. And so it's it's kind of set up, it's kind of fixed. And so each person, the mother, the bride, the ruling faction, 
that you know their brothers, their parents, all of them have their favorite candidates who they try and fix. I've just remembered there's actually a very similar thing in the Mughal Empire, which is the bazaar, it's called, and yeah. and all these women are lined up and they try and sell the emperor radishes and things. Yes, that's right, but it's slightly because because but that's to find sort of mistresses. That's where they pick up mistresses, isn't mm. it, William? It's not actually where they pick up their chief wife. Yes, you're right. The, the wives is, the wives are from princely Rajput families. Usually. Yeah. So so yeah. and and there is a history in the bride show also. No, yeah, as you say, you know, people have their own facts. So it's a, a little bit fixed, but there is a history of sort of poisoning off some of the um, hopeful, you know, women yes. or candidates. Well, with, with, with Tsar Michael, who we met last mm. time as the founder of the Romanov dynasty, for his marriage, he dored the girl he chose in his in his um, bride show, but his courtiers poisoned her, gave her a laxative and a mimetic which meant that when she was walking around with him looking gorgeous, she was suddenly sick and oh, suffered God. appalling diarrhea, yeah, yeah, which yeah. meant that suggested that she wasn't healthy enough to bear the child. So she was sent back to her family in, in terrible humiliation. And he never got over losing her because he loved her. And then the guy who, who fed her the diuretic gets caught because she's gets alive caught. and well living in Siberia without any ever being sick ever again after this. Yes. Wasn't he? Was yes. he working for his Michael's mother? Was it yes. Michael's mother? Yes. My yes. God, the mother-in-law. There you are. <laughs> yeah, the mother-in-law. <laughs> the mother-in-law the, from literally, hell. the the poisonous mother-in-law. Literally. Yeah. So that's the bride show, which is a right. big part of the Romanov story. So, so Peter now has he's got his mistress, he's got his uh, uh, German lady on the side, and he's got a yes. wife. So now, what is his ambition? What is going on in his head? What does he want? He wants to expand Muscovy. He has a vision for it. He hates. The, the priests, he hates the patriarchs, he hates the boyars, he hates the Strelsi, he wants to update Russia. And one of the big interesting things is that, you know, we're always presented with Peter the Great as if he's this kind of wonderful sort of liberal reformer. Yeah. And we always think that about Russian rulers and we people thought about, about, about Putin. But in fact, he just wants Western technology to make Russia a great military power. Because, in, because the first thing he does is march down to the Sea of Azov by Crimea and take the port of Azov. Um, he takes the, fort, the Ottoman fortress of Azov. He founds Taganrog, and it's the first time Russia has reached the Crimea, basically, and has a, has a presence down there. In and this Crimea. is a crucial moment. It's a crucial moment. It gives them a port and uh, everything. He doesn't keep it, by the way, but we'll come to that later. Um, but for a while, he has it. And the point is that he realizes he needs... Um, the first time he tries to take it, it fails, and he hasn't got he hasn't got artillery. So he need, he knows he needs Western artillery, Western ships, Western everything. So what he basically does is in 1697 he calls himself Piko Mikhaikov as a pseudonym. He already is known as Bombardier Peter, which just means <laughs> very junior, which is a very it's like being called Private Peter, mm. and. Anita, you mentioned this earlier. He likes to dress up in normal uniforms and to be in semi-incognito because monarchs had so much um, flummery they had to put up with the ceremony. So he went everywhere pretending to be um, Peter Makarkov while somebody else was head of the embassy he was now leading to the West. He was just a junior member of the hundreds of people there. They set off in 1697. They set off with um, with 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 250 people in the entourage and they go around Europe and they visit Amsterdam, they visit Holland where the best ships are and they visit London and they visit all the major capitals of Europe. And 
Um, what he's really looking for is to learn to make ships, and he does this himself. There's a lovely description in your book of him staying at John Evelyn's immaculate house in Deptford, which he subsequently wrecks with his raucous behaviour. He's never seen a wheelbarrow before, so he- yeah, it's called Say's. It's called Say's Court, and it's I was at immaculate house. He rents it in Deptford. Um, he rents John Evelyn's house. And him and his friends, it gives you an idea of what, what they were like, what the all jesting, all drunk and all mad synod were like, because they wiped their bottoms on the, on the curtains. Oh, um, they, 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 used, they used paintings for target practice. And they had, um, as William said, they had wheelbarrow races through the hedges. But he also came to Kensington Palace and met William III, mm. um, which, is, which is just around the corner from where I'm sitting right now. And the most important thing is in Holland and in and in also in um, in England he learned about shipbuilding. And the other thing that was fascinated him was dead bodies. He treated human bodies rather like uh, technology, and he was very interested in dismantling them. There he are attended, warning signs. There are red flags coming yeah. up. <laughs> there are, he, attended, <laughs> he attended the um, he attended the, um, the the dissection of bodies. He made afterwards. He queued up and made all. He wanted to bite the dead body. And he made all his entourage, including Peter Tolstoy and others, bite the body. And he also got a bite. He was interested in dead flesh. He was interested in, in dismantling human bodies. And one of the things he did was he also bought a collection of knives, scalpels and pliers, thinking himself a surgeon. And if you were a member of Peter the Great's entourage, you never again said you had a bad t- sore toe or a, <laughs> or a bad a tooth or toothache yeah. because he would instantly insist on either on, on cutting off the toe himself or with teeth on ripping the teeth out personally. So you never mention that again. I am desperate. I'm desperate to know because these are things that normally when you have um, a guy who's in power and has ultimate power, they kind of delete the record. How do we know about the biting and stuff? Because, I mean, you're brilliant at finding sources that other people haven't looked at. Oh, well, because this was this was in, this was openly, I mean, records of his trip. You know, there are records of um, Evelyn's estate, for example, exactly what he did. John Evelyn exactly actually writes about this himself, doesn't he? He writes yeah. about it because he claims he, ha- he claims the money back from William the Third because he oh, says really? that he shouldn't pay the- he needs to redo he needs to redecorate his house. Yeah. So we have back. a full list of every damage that's yeah. done by his, the old His philosophy in life is very interesting. He often says, "Work fast because wasted time is like death; it can never be reversed." Mm. So he goes back. Um, he heads back to, to Moscow, but on the way, he learns that the Streltsy, the dreaded Streltsy, who threw all his family off the balcony when he was 10 years old, have rebelled again. And his friend, the cock of the East, General Gordon, defeats them. But when he arrives, he's already ordered torture chambers to be assembled, to be built in with small cubicles, hundreds of cubicles. Mm. And he arrests all the Streltsy and he embarks on torturing them all to death. Often and personally, you often say, when personally. He gets yeah. and there are records of him sort of smashing people's teeth out with a hammer, saying like, "Confess, beast." And when they are all executed, he hangs out many of the bodies outside his sister, his half sister Sophia's convent room, where she's now confined as you for do. most of her life. As you do, mm. and he also is fascinated what happens when you cut someone's head off. And one of the things he wants to do is chop the head off and see how long they stay sitting up and twitching. And he's fascinated with that. But now he's destroyed all opposition and he now um, is ready to do, to embark on his great work, which is to expand the empire. He's tried to the south. We talked about at the sea as of and the fortress of Azov. And now 
he follows in the footsteps of Ivan the Terrible and he looks towards Livonia and the Baltic Sea and he, he attacks the Swedish Empire. And the Swedish Empire is the greatest empire uh, militarily in Europe, along with the Fra- of France, of Le- course. Led by Charles XII. Now led by a very young king of Sweden, mm. Charles XII, who's a sort of very strange, balding, ascetic, very kind of uh, uh, intense and obsessional young man who turns yeah, that's out weird. to he's be... He's balding and ascetic. I mean, he's got the, all the sensibilities and the look of a, an old, wizened creature, but he's 18. Yes. He's, a, he's just 18, a kid. But he can do amazing things. He, he's, he's, sort of tr- he's hardened himself for war by doing things like teaching himself to run up and jump on a horse, you know, without a saddle. Um, he can pick up a glove by galloping past off the ground, this kind of thing. He's a, and he's a military genius. And this becomes a great sort of uh, a contest, these two extraordinary two, young men. Two young men, these two great yeah. men. So what he does is, what Peter does is, in 1700, he launches this war in, in alliance with Augustus the Strong, the, um, the demented and um, lascivious king of Poland and elector of Saxony, who's known as Augustus the Strong because he has 400 children and um, including seduces his own daughter and is is the fox throwing champion of Europe, but that, which I'm sure will offend. <laughs> I think that has to be a moment to take a break because we're at that point. But we will be back in a bit. You're breaking up fox throwing. Oh, no, I think that's fine. But we'll yeah, let's get over that. <laughs> Go and get a cup of tea. We'll be back after this short break. <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We have the wonderful Simon Seabag Montefiore uh, taking us through one of the great episodes of Russian history and the beginning of the Russian Empire. And we left him about to tell us with this contest 
against his great rival, Charles of Sweden, the uh, European champion of fox throwing, you were saying. No, no, that's Augustus the Strong. Sorry, Augustus the Strong. (laughs) (laughs) Augustus the Strong is very different. Charles Charles of Twelve has no vices except um, he's not interested in women. Um, He's only interested in war. And he's, a, he's an ascetic. He's the only virtuous person in the whole of this podcast. But Peter the Great lines up with the fox thrower. He's, they, they he are lines allies. up with the fox thrower. And the idea is that they are going to, um, they are going to t- dismantle the Swedish Empire, which, which controls the whole way around the Baltic Sea, if you can imagine that. It includes Finland, Norway, all the Baltic countries, bits of what is now Poland... And and all the and St. Petersburg are all part of the Swedish Empire. Extraordinary, extraordinary thing, but it's a sort of forgotten empire. So in 1700, he attacks Narva and he fails to take Narva, Peter. It's a terrible humiliation. Charles XII gallops out, defeats the army. Peter flees away, gallops away. It's an extreme embarrassment. And so Peter the Great is, you know, just, just sort of symbolizes how, you know, rulers have to learn from mistakes and Re relearn, yeah. um, you know. Relearn he doesn't how panic. To he, he just he picks he himself up his calm. and yeah. learns. He picks from it up and yeah. he starts to improve all of his guards regiments, his elite guard regiments, and he embarks on this war. The Great Northern War lasts twenty years, basically, and it it doesn't it, it ends with Peter's victory, as we know. But it's a close run thing. And Charles XII, the Swedish king, makes a big mistake. Instead of immediately invading Russia, as he should have. He decides to take Poland instead, and that gives Peter the time to recover. To Is that recover. because he underestimates Peter because he's defeated him? He underestimates him? Peter, yeah, because yeah. Peter hasn't. Peter so far um, has not been an impressive person, and so um, so he, he he thinks I'll take Poland. Better at wheelbarrow Poland. races than full-scale battles at this point. Yeah, better at soiling John Evelyn's um, uh, curtains. Uh, curtains. Mm. We, won't, we won't dwell on that anymore. But, <laughs> Thank so, you for um, bringing it back. And, and, and Third mention of John mm-hmm. Evelyn's better, curtains. Better at partying, better at partying. Yeah. So, so he builds up his, his army. Meanwhile, finally, um, Charles XII is ready to invade Russia. In 1708, 1709, he invades the Tsardom of Muscovy. And during, uh, during this turbulent period... Is, is this when he falls in love as well, during he all this all hell breaking loose? Well, he, when, does, you know. yes, he does two things, two, two yeah. amazing things now. In 1703, um, he, he's taken enough Swedish territory, which he has managed to keep, to found the new city. And the new city is a window on the west. He builds it on Hare's Island or, on the eastern Baltic, and it's called St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And this is not an obvious spot for a new city. It's marshy, it's very marshy, mosquitoes. it's islands, but it does, but he's thinking of boats and harbours and stuff when he does it. Mm. He boats are one of his enthusiasms, aren't they? He really likes boats. And he's brilliant at building, he can build boats by hand. He's an extraordinary character. And so he starts to found this new city and he, you know, he makes all his grandees buy how build houses and he begins to spend a lot of time there and he supervises everything. There's, there's one memo where he, he, um, he, he writes, anyone who defecates outside public, um, outside the public lavatories that I have created will be whipped with the cat o' nine tails. Mm. And he goes around inspecting St. Petersburg and anybody who's, any officials who are found doing anything wrong, he jumps off his carriage and beats them with his stick or punches them. Initially, no one wants to move to this city. No the, one wants to move yeah. there. The diplomats it's, it's, don't it's, want to go there. The merchants want to stay in Archangel. So he just closes down the hemp trade in Archangel and, and makes them all move. He makes everyone. He's got immense power. But at the same time, 
Um, he's improved his army, but Charles the Twelfth has inva- now invades Muscovy, and it looks like it's it's going to be curtains. It's a kind of blitzkrieg, isn't it? It's a it's very a very fast advance, and it shows and it shows how you know how Russia, the openness of Russia to invaders, which is why security is obsessional and why you know their rulers have a. a you know, have so much power. Can, can we, um, love. What about love? What about love? I mean, I listen. Just <laughs> let, let, let me just just to write that all of this is happening. You know, he's he's and the founding of Saint Petersburg. I mean, what they estimate a hundred thousand could have died in this creation of this dream of his, this window to the West that he wants to create. But in the meantime, at his friend's house, he meets Martha. Now, tell us a bit about Martha Skavronskaya. Martha yes. Skavronskaya is one of the most extraordinary women in modern European history, and she's, she's underknown. What's fascinating about her is she's probably, she's not Russian. She's not an aristocrat. She's been the mistress of many people. She's a, she's a camp, what used to be called a camp follower. She's extremely beautiful, highly intelligent, but she's semi-literate. She can, she can read, but she can't write. Sometimes she's called in some old sources a laundry maid. She, she has been a scullery maid and a laundry maid. The, the fact that she rises, and I'm slightly spoiling the story here, to Empress in her own right. You are, you're doing a Dalrymple. <laughs> Look, wait. Is, is extraordinary. Yeah, no, but uh, wait. No, 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 just don't do that. Don't give it away because it's too lovely. So, so, and the other thing, extraordinary thing about Martha, which is probably what makes her very attractive to Peter, the carouser, is she can hold her liquor. Yes. I mean, she's first seen being driven naked as a prisoner of war into the Russian camp. With a, with a blanket. With a blanket. And she immediately becomes the mistress of the field marshal. Then she becomes the mistress of Peter's best friend, Prince Menchikov. And be- mistress and best friend for life. Mm. And then Peter sees her and he falls in love with her. And it is one of the great love affairs. She cradles him when he has an epileptic fit. She's the only person he trusts. That's a very touching scene because he's he can be quite ill. The, the advisors just yeah. know to bring her along. And all yes, will be she'll well. Yeah. She teases back. him. She teases him when he has a, a sleeps with other women, which he does all the time. He does exactly what he likes. He's terribly promiscuous. She jokes with him when he has a venereal disease. She encourages him in his sailing and all of that. She does say once, I hope you're not going to bring that back home or something. Yeah, the VD, don't bring back your VD. <laughs> don't bring your VD back home. Yeah. <laughs> and she has 12 children with him. Only Some of them are boys, which Peter's only really interested in boys. He calls them his recruits, army recruits. But... He also has these daughters who become who 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 become his favourites, and he adores them. And she has she's such a heavy drinker and a hard sort of she's such an amazing she's there in character. She's back in the bus with Peter. She's back in the bus. She's she's she forms her own jolly company of kind of debauchery, and that she dresses as an Amazon in it, and she becomes his great confidant. And and it's one of the great love affairs. We have all their letters. So. So she now becomes his wife. She gets rid of his old wife and he marries her. Did, did we say that Martha changed her name to Catherine? Yes, she's converted. She's not even Orthodox. And she's convert, she converts to Orthodoxy, becomes Yekaterina Catherine. That may be relevant in, an, in, in, a, in a little while. That it may be. Just put a pin in that. Her name is now 
Catherine. And, you know, the letters between them, I, I, I'm really interested in their dynamic because although she knows that he's going to sleep with other people and she teases him about it and there's that, you know, hilarious line that you've got in your book about, you know, don't bring back your VD, um, have a nice time, but don't bring it back with it, it, you. It is, it is the 18th century, so this kind of thing is, is not unknown. Is he the same with her and lovers? I mean, does he mind no, if she's... No, no. It, it doesn't work both ways. doesn't, does it? No. What, what, <laughs> does, he do to, what does he do to her German lover? I mean, there's just, a later occasion yeah. when when she has a young admirer may have had an affair with Willem Mons, who's the brother of Peter's first mistress, Anna Mons, who we mentioned earlier. Mm. And when Peter finds out about it, he goes insane and he arrests lots of people. He apparently says to her, you know, I made you, I can unmake you like that. And he smashes a mirror in the palace. And she says that doesn't do much for the interior decoration, does no. it? <laughs> and she's and she and he arrests Willem Mons and has him beheaded, even though they're great friends. And it's not the only good friend of his. He 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 also executes one of his um one of his mistresses. But that's another story. And he and he shows her the head of Willem Mons. And the head is kept in his Kunstkammer, which is his cabinet of curiosities. One of the things he does is collect body parts and freaks, freaks and dwarfs and fetuses in his Kunstkammer, which was quite a common thing in the 18th century, a sort of scientific cabinet mm. of curiosities. Is all in formaldehyde or is it just They're all rotting? in formaldehyde. Mm. And when he executes later, also at the same time, this is much later in his reign, when he executes his former mistress and Catherine's lady-in-waiting, Mary Hamilton, who's very beautiful, a Scot again. He finds that she has aborted babies and, and exposed babies that she had with her lover out of marriage, Mary Hamilton. And she's his, his beloved former mistress. But he, he, he says, you've got to die because this is murder. And he walks with this her. Is, to the, this is murder. This is murder. <laughs> this is murder. <laughs> he walks with Mar the beautiful Mary Hamilton, who's very in her early 20s. He walks with her to the, to the gallows. And he whispers, everyone expects him to forgive her and to, you know, to pardon her, but he doesn't. And she's executed in all her beauty. He kisses her first and then he executes. He kisses her and then he, she tells her to lay her head and she's, she's beheaded. He then, being, this is very Peter the Great, he then picks up her head, her beautiful, people said they'd never seen a more beautiful head. He picks it up and he says, those of you who see this may be interested in, I'm a great, I know a lot about anatomy. And here's the windpipe and here's the spine. And even the Muscovite crowd, who must have been hardy fellows, <laughs> groan with horror at this. And then he kisses then he kisses her on her bloody lips and drops her in a basket and goes off to work. Now, wait, I, I just just before we move back to because there is also, you know, a war with Sweden going on. We're going to come back to that in a second. But just yeah. how do you characterize this relationship? Because it could be, you know, a woman who's with a man like this is with an, a complete nut job. And does she, I mean, is, is, is it love or is it an abusive relationship or is it some weird codependency between two really bizarre people? What is this relationship? Well, I think you should say they're, they're very special people. They're exceptional people. I mean, Peter is, a sort of, of them, yeah. he's, uh, Peter is a political genius because he has all the three great gifts for, you know, for ruling. You know, he has the vision, you know, he knows what he wants to do. He has the acumen to get it done and he has the resources to do it. So he's extraordinary, but the only way to is to, to do anything in Russia is to, you know, for, to do it by force. And he's he's an absolute autocrat and tyrant. And even the Russian, even his courtiers were constantly grumbling that he was a, a, a you know, he was a, a dictator and and a dynamo just physically and a dynamo drinking all night, getting up early, doing two hours on his lathe, and then sort of you know doing a massacre or you know he would literally supervise everybody personally and. Um, 
She was extraordinary. He was constantly busting people for, for corruption, beating people. So, so did she love him? She loved him. And I think he was, in his way, a lovable character for her. Um, I think I, I don't think it's an I don't think it's an abusive relationship. I think it was a, I think she was an extraordinary person, and I say you know probably one of the two most extraordinary women in modern European history. I think the other one we'll discuss in another time. Right. Okay. So while, while these two are now they found each other, um, yes. and 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 all that that entails. We had kind of put a pin in what was going on with um, the ascetic leader of Sweden, who has whooped Peter's butt once. Uh, but yep. now Peter has picked himself up. And then what happens next? Well, he, inv- he invades what is now Ukraine. As he invades Ukraine, fascinatingly, the hetman of the Cossacks, Mazeppa, legendary figure, defects from the Russian side to the Swedish side. And Mazeppa is, is regarded often as a sort of pre-Ukraine. His state is often regarded as a sort of pre-Ukraine, an early version of Ukraine. We should say, Seabag here, just break in, because we've had several armies crossing Ukraine already yeah. in the course of this episode. Who is living in Ukraine? Is there any sense of a separate people who are different from the Russians? Yes, yes. There's, there's already, I mean, the peasantry in what is now Ukraine, in northern, what is now northern Ukraine, speak a dialect that is Ukrainian and that is now, we now call it Ukrainian. It's regarded as the language of the peasantry, but there are also Poles who are the landlords there. There are also Jews living in those, in those territories and there are Cossacks. Now Cossacks develop, they start off, it's just, it, the word comes from Kazakh, which is Turkic for sort of free, freebooter, adventurer. And they are communities of of different groups who have come together in these communities, which you know, which are militarily semi-independent still, and one of them, the Zaporozhian Zaporozhian Cossacks, exist in Zaporozhia, which is where the war is taking place in Ukraine mm-hmm. now. We've already had this idea of, of Ivan the Terrible rolling across Ukraine. Is there any sense to the people in Moscow that they're crossing any kind of boundary when they go into the Ukraine at this period in history? Not at all. Ukraine is simply their province that they call little they call little Russia. And as far as they're concerned, in 1654, Alexei, Peter's father, has signed an agreement with um, Klemnitsky, the hetman of the Cossacks, and who called himself Prince of Rus. And he needed Russian help. So he signed this treaty with the Muscovites. And he thought that he was kind of uniting with Muscovy, but actually... According to the Tsar, the Russian Tsars just regarded it as a Russian province. Now, if we had on this program uh, a Ukrainian, hist- a modern nationalist Ukrainian historian, would he would he object at this point and say actually there's the beginnings of sense of nationalism, or, or, or not even Ukrainian historians claim that at this point? Uh, he might do. He might say that. I mean, I think he would say that um, these Cossack communities are sort of precursors of the of the Ukrainian state, and that their spirit of sort of semi-democratic elected hetmans and that their community was a precursor to the sort of more free, more westernized, more democratic tradition that we now see in Ukraine. Well, if we had a Russian historian now in, he would say absolute nonsense. A Russian historian would say, actually, these Cossacks were just Cossacks. They had no interest in the Ukrainian-speaking mm. peasantry and that they now, they, they, were, they were sort of semi-traitorous Russian allies and ultimately the Cossacks would become military pillars of the Romanov Russian regime. In that new, wonderful Orlando Feige's book, The Story of Russia, he he builds up a very interesting case about how there is a war over history in this territory. We're not just yes. discussing military campaigns, that there are completely different understandings of history depending on where you're viewing from. Do you find it very difficult to write this stuff without offending one or the other? 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to be, um, you have to, it is very hard to write it without offending the other. But, you know, one just, one has to lay out both sides. I mean, for example, you know, Vladimir the Great, who converted in, in 988 to, to, to Christianity, you know, is also regarded as the founder of Russia and also regarded as the founder of Ukraine. Right. So, so yep. the same people are being fought over by historians today. So, so, so then Peter, who has now regrouped, and do, so does he start winning against Charles? And how does he start winning against Charles? Well, in 1709, on the 27th of June, 1709, Peter commands his own army, which he spent years building up at Poltava, which is now in Ukraine, and was, was then part of Muscovy. And he was very much helped by the fact that Charles XII had been wounded in the leg and was on a stretcher. But Peter actually proves himself an outstanding commander-in-chief, mm. setting a precedent for every Russian Tsar, general secretary and president to this day, desperate to be a, Peter, a Petrine commander. And he wins the Battle of Poltava. And it's not an easy victory. It's a, it's a tough not battle. An active, it's a tough battle. And the Russians are fighting, the Muscovites, as they still are, are fighting the best army in Europe. But obviously, it's short of food, it's short of provisions. It's gone too deep into Russia. It's like gone every too other... deep into Russia, like Napoleon and Hitler. And it's also, it's, its genius commander is wounded and no one can really function without him. And he's, and he's, he's, he's got a wound on his, on his foot, hasn't he? And he's gushing blood in the middle of all this. Gushing blood. And, but Peter takes control and he does so in textbook style. You know, he, he commands the battle and he wins hands down. And, and, and then, of course, you know, Nanita, we were talking about love earlier. Mm. And then he writes a brilliant note to Catherine, his, his wife, who's, who's now Tsarina, the first Tsarina of Russia. And he says to her, I've just, I've, I've beaten the Swedes. Come and help me celebrate. He says, <laughs> come and celebrate, come and celebrate with me, he writes, yeah. which is very much their relationship. And he also writes, doesn't he, that we have come from darkness into light. This for him is yes. a complete turning point in his reign. Well, this is the moment, 1709, that Russia becomes a great power. And so it's an incredibly significant point. And it's the moment really that Russia, Russia now, you know, can use, po Poland becomes a satellite state of Russia. Um, parts of Germany become under the Russian, under Russian control. I mean, Russia has now arrived. The second half of that quote is, is sort of just tells you ex exactly what you yep. need to know. No one in the world knew us, but now they must respect us. Yes, yes. They'd been, they'd been a laughing stock. I mean, they'd been regarded as savages. I feel John Evelyn's curtains coming back here. Again. Yes, <laughs> and now they, you know, they now they would be regarded differently. And also, Peter has changed the way they, they. We haven't mentioned this, but you know, when he came back from Europe, he forced everyone to give up their caftans and to shave their beards and cut their hair, and in some cases, cut the beards himself. Yes, and he cut the beards himself, and he now and all the Russian elite now dressed like the Duke of Marlborough would dress or, you know, in, in, a, in a German coat with boots and, um, you know, mm. a, a German military dress. Can, can we talk about one of the darkest chapters? I mean, it's already pretty dark, so just imagine what this is going to sound like. But Alexei, what happens to his son, Peter, uh, Peter's son? Well, Alexei's, Alexei has never forgiven Peter for the way he treated his mother, uh, Eudoxia, who he put away into a convent and divorced. Um, he's also hates the fact that Peter always wants to fight more and more wars. And he thinks that Peter's a dictator. And Peter just is just outraged by Alexei and all everything Alexei does is wrong. Um, Alexei supports people who are opposed to Peter politically, which is very dangerous. And he also 
Um, he also seems to have very little ability. And Peter regularly says stuff like, you know, that boy is like a, a, a thumb with, with a disease. You know, I'm going to, at some point, I'm going to have to cut oh, it's off. It's just awful. And, and he must, Alexei must know this, which may explain why he rather sensibly pegs it to Vienna. He doesn't want to be around his psychotic father who's locked up his mother and is now married to Catherine, the great love affair, and is doing these things that he just doesn't want to be part of. Yes. I mean, he's terrified of his father. Who wouldn't be? And his father regularly says, either come and join me and help me, or I'm going to like, I'm going to disinherit you and I'm going to cut you off like a, like a rotten thumb, he says. So then Alexei does an unforgivable thing, which is to uh, run off to Europe to Peter's enemies in Vienna and elsewhere. Mm. And Peter orders Peter Tolstoy. Now, this is Tolstoy as in the Tolstoy family that we know. This is, this yeah. is the founder of the Tolstoy family mm-hmm. who becomes one of Peter's toughest henchmen. And he sends him off. No, no novelist, this one. No novelist. This is his secret police chief. Um, he's head of the secret chancellery. And he sends him off to leer back the poor Alexei. And Alexei is promised anything. I mean, he, he does it over time, doesn't he? He says, look, you know, you're wrong about your dad. He loves you really. Come back. You know, there are things, it, it will be all right. You know, he really, um, he, he takes time to brainwash a child or yes. this child of, of Peter to think he's safe. Yes, he, he lies to him. He, he soothes him. He promises him his father's forgiveness. But he has, in fact, defected to Peter's enemy. So from now on, he's just marked. And the moment he comes back to Russia... Everyone knows what's going to happen. Everyone knows what's going to happen except Alexei. And Alexei arrives and is immediately arrested. And Peter treats him as a traitor. And he literally says, this boy is a gangrenous thumb. I will cut it off like a gangrenous thumb. But it isn't just a a cutting off plane. There's torture. I mean, he takes his time, doesn't he? He takes his time and he treats Peter not like a son, but like a, a treasonable minister and he tortures him. And there are other people connected with this conspiracy. He launches what Stalin would call a case against him. And there are many, many people helping Alexei, because of course they're all thinking Peter could mm-hmm. die at any moment, this guy's going to be czar. So they're, they're, a lot of people have covered themselves by kind of encouraging him and protecting him. They are all arrested. They are all tortured. They are all executed. And Alexei himself is tortured to death by Menshikov his father's best friend, and by Peter himself. And they tortured him, they whip him. And finally, he just, he, 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 he's tortured to death in 1718. Oh, yeah. So, so, I mean, it's, it's just ghastly. Over a period of yes. weeks, it seems, from this. Oh, they torture him for months. They torture him for months. God, for and, months. And, he has no, and he has no compunction about this. No, he all. deliberately kills him. He's the gangrenous thumb, mm. and he's doomed. And Peter doesn't even mourn him. But, but does he come into the torture chamber himself? Does he talk to his does son? Does it yeah. himself? He yeah. does things to his son. He thrashes him. He beats him. But this is thrashing with a knout, where um, it's not like being whipped with a cat of nine tails or you know what we think of. So a knout is a huge leather a bludgeon. When you beat people with that, it goes to the bone. So you know you, you can die of being beaten with the knout. Right. From your body goes into shock. Or you can get infection. So he dies. We don't know exactly what he died of. Oh, gosh, it'd be, it'd be sepsis or something horrific. But now Peter yeah. doesn't have, mm. but now Peter has, rather like Ivan the Terrible, he's killed his heir. Mm. And he doesn't have a healthy son. And he has, he has daughters. And he has grandson. Alexei left a son. But he doesn't have an heir, an adult heir. That's, so he's, he's, he's undermined his own kingdom. Okay, so he's, he's killed off progeny. Um, but his 
idea of expanding his Russia continues, doesn't it? Yes. In 1711, the Ottomans attack him and they think they've got an opportunity. And this is another one of these amazing occasions when Peter could have failed. He's actually surrounded by the Ottoman um, Grand Vizier and he's got to surrender and, and his wife gives all her jewels to bribe him. She's there. She's in the middle She's of the sea. She's with him. Yeah. She stays with him and she, again, she shows her total metal. She keeps complete calm. She, they're living like soldiers in trenches and she doesn't grumble. And Peter gets out. He has to give up Azov, which he'd conquered at great cost, we talked about earlier. But he gets out. He calls it the banquet of death. He calls it the, it's the banquet of death. And he constantly talks about how hard it is to rule. He says, it's hard to live. I have to keep sword and pen in hand all the time. But he also is always thinking about the East and expanding to the East. So in 1717, he sends off a junior, a junior commander, Alexander Bekovich Cherkaski, who is of, of Tartar descent. He sends him off with a small army to go into Central Asia, where there are these Khanates that we mentioned, um, ruled by descendants of um, Genghis Khan. And this is a long way south. This, I mean, geographically, this is a hell of a journey. It's a long way south. But Russia is beginning to show an interest in South, which we'll talk about later. But he orders him, among other things, to force the Kievan Khan to submit to Peter and to send, and to send envoys to India to establish direct trade with the Mughal emperors. Interestingly. Yeah. And so Russia is already thinking about Central Asia and India, which it never gave up the hope of getting, by the way. So this are these, is this, would you say, like definitive, this is the origin of the great game? I mean, this, this mindset is born. This is the beginning of the great game. Except that it, before, the Brits aren't established at all in India. So it, it's, the, it's pre, they're moving south before the Brits even begin to move in. But they're, they're thinking about India um, pretty much before the Brits had even done. And this is a time, this is the, this is the sort of soon after, the, only soon after the death of Aurangzeb, when you know, the East India Company, far from being masters of India, were, were repeatedly humiliated and defeated by the Mughal emperors and had to behave like supplicants to them. And as Peter would have done too, if he'd reached it, which he didn't. Aurangzeb actually puts all the East India Company factors in chains and yes. parades them and puts them to Dhaka fortress and they have to beg for forgiveness. Yes, he defeats them. He forces them to pay massive fines. And Peter doesn't have much more success in Kiva. He doesn't have much more success. Um, his army is, is white, literally wiped out and terrible things happen to Bekovich, Cherkaski. The, the Khan separates them, says, welcomes them all, says, come to Kiva, land mm. of opportunity, and yes. then splits them all up into small groups, each under a different Khan, and then massacres them at night massacres them all at night and does something terrible to Chikaski. He's probably beheaded, but he may have been stuffed with straw. There are many stories of what happened to him, but he never comes back. But this is only a small, you know, this is a small matter. More importantly, in 1722 and 23, Peter in, you know, invades Persia. Which is a big power at this point. So we've got now, we've got uh, Peter who has now been the first person to beat back the Swedes and, and prove himself to be this great leader who's looking east who's looking west i mean south, he's, he's south he's looking i mean you know he's this is this is now an emperor of all russia it's a title that he takes for himself it is you know emperor of all russia so that there are no principalities are there are no other places is it all the russians what is yeah, meant by all that the russians. all the russians or all the russians all the russians all the russians and what it yeah. means what are is, the russians well the russians are little russia ukraine white russia 
Belarusia, which means white Russia. So, so these are sort of regarded as sub-Russian departments, sections, provinces, if you like, um, governorships. And the people in both those places, Ukraine and Belarus, are, are regarded as sort of lesser Russians. So, so important for when we're trying to understand Putin today. Yes, this is the beginning of the oppression of Ukraine. But you've got to remember, I mean, Lenin called the Russian Empire the prison of nations. And there were hundreds of nations in the empire. It wasn't just about Ukraine. I mean, now he's added the Livonians, who are the Balts, he's added mm. to the Russian Empire now. He's added White Russia. He's added Northern Ukraine. He's open relations with all those Georgian kings and so on, but he hasn't taken it. He's tried to, he's tried to take Baku and he manages to take Baku, which is Persian. But the point is, he's now master, he's now vastly increased this empire. And in 1721, he starts to negotiate, he starts to negotiate peace with Sweden, finally. And it's the peace of Nystad. And it's a, another decisive moment in world history because it's the moment Typically, Neistat is negotiated by a German and a Scotsman, William, um, <laughs> James Bruce. And he now negotiates and he wins Petersburg. Petersburg is now the capital of Russia. He moves it from the old capital right. to Ruska. And he's, and he's still in his late 40s. I mean, I just, just to put that yes. in perspective, this is a man who has done all of this and is still in his late 40s. And right. Petersburg is, is now a proper, a proper city. Is it wood? Is it stone? No, no, it's, it's, it's becoming stone. A lot of it is wood. A lot of it is like a sort of facade, like they're just, they're kind of like a grand palace in the middle of a marsh. And he, and his, and it typically a Peter, he's brilliant with people. He drives around with the sort of police chief, mayor of, of um, St. Petersburg, who is a Jew, a converted Jew from Portugal. So he's, mm -hmm. the governor of, the governor is, is Menchikov, but his, but the mayor is, is a converted Jew called Devier. And he drives around with him. And every time he finds something wrong, he beats him. And then, <laughs> and then he says, Climb back into the carriage, brother, and they drive off. Oh, God, he's um, nuts. He spend, and he spends a lot of time drinking in German and Dutch pubs, smoking his pipe. And he refuses to let anyone build a bridge. He wants everyone to go around in boats. He wants everyone to go around in boats. And he's created the first Russian navy in the Baltic. This is the point. 1721, he now creates a new country. And the country is Russia. He takes the name from Rus, the old, you know, sort of Dark Ages kingdom, founded by Rurik all those years ago in the ninth century. And he, he kind of um, Hellenizes it and he calls it Russia, Russia. <laughs> and he changes the name of his country from the Grand Principality of Moscow to Russia. And he adopts a title. He's already Tsar, which is sort of emperor, but now he adopts a new title. And the title is Imperator Latin. Mm. Russia has arrived. It's a great power. It's a huge empire of many nations, including Ukraine, but including many others. It's already reached the Pacific, so Siberia exists. And now um, he declares himself Emperor of Russia. And he lived happily ever after. Oh, no, he didn't, because actually he got a bladder infection. <laughs> From his VD, brought home. How, how yeah. on earth does uh, the world lose Peter the Great after he's Peter had his highest Peter the Great is point? only 52. He's had a huge crisis where he finds his wife maybe having the affair with Milan Moynes that we've told about. He has... So he ends up with a sort of another great purge of executing people. And, um, and then he gets a, a uremia, a sort of a bladder infection, possibly connected to the VD that everybody at that time probably had. And at age of 52, he dies, naming a successor a surprise. Um, instead of naming a male heir, he and his entourage, Prince Menshikov, um, his self-made henchman, declare Catherine 
as the empress of all the Russias. And she succeeds him in her own right as the first empress of Russia. Now, this is not Catherine the Great, just to make... This, this is clear. Catherine yeah. the First. This is his hard-drinking 38-year-old... Former laundry maid. Former laundry maid, former courtesan, who is a woman. She's not an aristocrat. She's not even gentry. She's not Russian. She wasn't born orthodox. And yet, she's had an extraordinary person, by all accounts. Yeah, and yeah. she is the most successful woman in modern Europe. Well, she was she was one of the, the great sovereign ladies of Russia. We're going to end it here. Simon, it's just, well, Seabag, I sound like your scolding mother. So, Seabag, absolutely a delight to have you. Magnificent. Yeah, um, join us again on Tuesday when we'll be discussing the other great Catherine, Catherine the Great. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Durrumpel. Mm-hmm.